Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to this Great Feast conversation. My guest today is a perfect example of a Great Feast diner, which makes for a very rich conversation. Now, I have long been driven by an attraction to the wonders of the human mind and its potential for searing, penetrating thought, rich understanding and articulation of complex ideas, and the joys, yes, joy, of the intellectual life. I have equally been repulsed by disembodied intelligence, excessive abstraction, especially the sort incapable of locating itself in the physical and human geography in which it performs its acts of brilliance. Today we have something marvellous and intellectual and a deep practitioner. A man steeped in Western philosophy and rooted deeply in Buddhism as a living tradition. Now that might sound familiar, but this, I would argue, is another level entirely. Something deeply, deeply human. Philosophy professor at Seattle University, Soto Zen priest, Sangha leader and Dharma teacher, Jason M. Wirth is the author of a long list of books that cover multiple subjects, ranging from Friedrich Schelling to Dogen, from Maurice Meluponti to Gary Schneider, and the forever relevant and explosive Frederick Nietzsche. Now, Jason has written a curious book, an interesting book, and a challenging book, exploring whether Frederick Nietzsche might be a Buddha. Well, of sorts. And it is to that book that our attention shall be directed initially, with many of its themes and implications acting as launch pads into related issues that go to the heart of the challenges that the practicing life faces today. I will also attempt to weave in questions and discussion related to two of Jason's other works, which will be, I think, most relevant to intelligent practitioners. So let me name the three books at the outset so I, well, do not forget, uh, but also so that you, dear listener, can dash off after listening and purchase yourself a copy. The first one, the main text, is Nietzsche and Other Buddhas. Buddhas in the plural, you heard it correctly. Subheading, Philosophy After Comparative Philosophy. Curious. That was written back in 2019. And before that, we had two more explicitly Buddhist texts. The first one, Engaging Dogen's Zen, The Philosophy of Practice as Awakening from 2017. And from the same year, Mountains, Rivers and the Great Earth, reading Gary Schneider and Dogen in an age of ecological crisis. I have interviewed many great people over the last seven odd years of the life of this podcast. And this was one that I actually had to go back and listen to again in order to give myself time to absorb and reflect on and actually just hear what is best defined as wisdom. I know, I know that word's a little bit out of fashion for you intellectual types, and you'll be glad to know this is not Buddhist wisdom per se, but human wisdom. We might have a conversation one day about how to define that, but I would suggest it's not as complicated as all that. I do hope, though, that you get as much out of this as I did. Enjoy. Jason, thank you for coming on to the podcast. How are you doing today? I'm doing just fine. Um, 
surgically ignoring the triumphant uh, parade of your queen. <laughs> yeah, good. And by the time this goes out, that will be long past. And who knows whether the queen will still be alive or not. She's getting on quite a bit. But that's not the topic of our conversation today. In truth, a good reason, or perhaps one of the strongest reasons for me uh, getting you on to the podcast for a conversation, was to discuss one of your works, which is Nietzsche and Other Buddhas, Philosophy After Comparative Philosophy. But that's not the only work that might come into our conversation today. There are two others which stand out as particularly interesting. Uh, one is on uh, engaging Dogen's Zen and the philosophy of practice as awakening. And the other is Mountains, Rivers and the Great Earth, reading Gary Snyder and Dogen in the age of ecological crises. Now, your books are interesting for many reasons, but one of them is that you do something that we're particularly interested in here on the podcast, which is bringing together a philosophy and Buddhism. And I'd like to start off with this, because you have many roles, and I'm fascinated by the relationship between identity and the roles we perform in our lives, and also in the way those roles can capture us and form us into well, perhaps performing beings, actors of sort, who have to, in some sense, play out identities. Now, I've always considered this recognition and its consequences to be part of the raw material of a practitioner's life. And Jason, I'd like to know how you reconcile your various roles and, well, I don't know if I can say it to a Buddhist, but they say identities. And I'd like to know whether you see your navigation of them as a practice within itself. Uh, I would say that's a very astute question. There are long answers and shorter answers because of the current medium we're working on. I'll give you a shorter answer, both a bit of a narratival arc. You know, the formation or role creation for an academic all over the world is fairly similar and fairly strenuous and really quite contained. You're being normed all along. Uh, your thinking is being in many ways enabled, but in some ways perhaps inadvertently disabled as we go through our professional formation. The big dream, of course, is one day you get tenure, and then finally all of that role-playing gets to be um, again, once again, more philosophical. And that's, first of all, a bit of a paradox for a philosopher. You're not educated philosophically, although you're educated in philosophy, but in a very regulated way. But once you have a little bit of freedom, then, first of all, even as a philosopher, the question becomes, philosophically, what does it mean to be a philosopher? What do I do with this enormous amount of resources, uh, time and energy that's been invested in my life? Uh, how do I make this part of the practice? And rather than just simply being a civil servant of the truth or a functionary of um, you know, the latest philosophical fads. And then I would add one complicating factor. Along the route of my professional formation, I also engaged a very serious Zen practice. It was first in Rinzai, and then eventually it was in Soto. And in 2010, I was uh, ordained in the Soto tradition. And so that is itself a very deep part of my life. But of course, what it means to be ordained and in a, a Japanese school, but not to live in Japan. That is itself a very serious Dharma question, but also a very serious philosophical question. 
especially as the Dharma takes its initial and really quite unsure steps into new soil. So I would say it takes a long time to be in my situation, but I feel very grateful to be in my situation because both philosophically and in terms of the Dharma, I think I'm at the liminality uh, that all ritual grows out of. Mm, mm, interesting. I'm going to ask you about America for a moment, but we might talk about Japan too. Like many, uh, if not all countries, I mean, America is a place of immense contradiction. On the one hand, it has a rich history of anti-intellectualism, partly rooted in its fundamentalist religious roots, but also in a kind of uh, anti-elitism, which takes different forms. On the other hand, America has been a safe haven for intellectuals escaping Europe throughout its modern history. And of course, has a, a plethora of intelligent folks critiquing its own anti-intellectual impulses. Now, you've engaged in an area of philosophy, at least judging by what I've read of your work, which picks up on a topic which many Americans would find almost opposite to their own, well, let's say, attraction towards American pragmatism. I guess I'd like to know how you ended up in that small group of, well, specialized intellectuals who engage with something like continental philosophy. And I wonder how you got into that and why you ended up in that world rather than following, I don't know, a more practical line. Yeah, um, that's a very rich question. I, I think um, my answer would be complex, but I would just maybe delineate a, a few features of it. First of all, I think we'd be lucky to say that the United States could still be characterized by its pragmatic streak in terms of its philosophical predilections. I think that was certainly true in the late 19th century uh, through the First World War uh, and then the interwar period. Uh, but that began to come to an end in the 1950s. Uh, we do know through the work of John McCumber and others uh, that was not an accident or a sudden switch in taste. In some ways, it was a complement to philosophy. If we think about the origins of the Western trajectory of philosophy, it begins with Socrates talking truth to power and power crushing him, and Socrates dying in a very philosophical way that continues to push back against power. But what that says is power recognized philosophy as threatening, as powerful, as consequential. I think pragmatic philosophy in the United States was consequential. It had large purchase beyond what philosophy normally does, and certainly beyond what philosophy today in the United States has. You think of John Dewey in the first half of the 20th century. He was a public intellectual. He was almost a household name. You think even in the late 1960s, uh, Marcuse, Herbert Marcuse, you know, had to have armed guard when he was teaching at San Diego. You had an FBI <laughs> investigation file on him. But something happened in the 50s. Uh, what happened in the 50s had a lot to do with philosophy becoming, yeah, okay, much more programmatic, uh, intellectually responsible and rigorous, often producing statements that are plausibly true, but rarely ever saying much that is all that relevant or all that destabilizing. That had a lot to do with hiring practices and the normalization of philosophical culture. And I would just step back and at least insist on this, not just as true of the United States or North America or settler colonial societies or of Europe. I would say it's generally been true through the human experience that philosophy is always the minority report. 
And it's the always the art of the minority report having some teeth. You know, it's closer to Jeremiah crying in the woods uh, than it is to a well-paid, pot-bellied civil servant of the truth. And so I would say the vocation of philosophy for the conscientious all over the world is to engage the practice of the minority report. So that's that's what I would say. Yeah. So uh, and you know, that's it is a it's a big country. I would say that I don't uh, uh, I don't overestimate my powers. I think philosophy is powerful, but also at the same time fragile. So it's a very different sense of power. You know, it's the, a sense of power that is itself what also makes it fragile. But, you know, the United States is in a very unstable place right now. And so I think it's also a, a real decision in terms of your own practice to find a place where you're going to be able to live and thrive uh, so that you have much more to give and that you feel much more encouraged in the always hard to swim upstream job of, yeah, a conscientious minority port that is a contribution to the public dialogue in a sea in which public discourse is largely chatter and irrelevant and disinformation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so I'd say as a good Buddhist, I would say, boom, there you go. That's also part of a way of walking the path. If that's your, your bag of, of, of inclinations and abilities. Part of your answer or the personal answer is that you have uh, had the natural proclivity towards this more richer, let's say, a deeper philosophical thought, because obviously not every American ends up getting into looking at something like continental philosophy and the work of Nietzsche. Uh, so what is it in particular that brought you to that world? I mean, I'm going to talk about your book next, but what is it that attracted you to that within the climate of American culture that you grew up in? Yeah, there's two ways that people typically uh, are introduced to philosophy. One is in a class. They've never heard of philosophy. And maybe the teacher's style wins them over or not, or some other style does. Uh, but it's part of your professional formation starting in college. The other way is, and I would say this, the United States is a very good country for philosophy for one reason. The public discourse is vapid. The anti-intellectualism of what you speak. Uh, speak is widespread. I think it's also programmatic. It's not just an historical contingency. I think uh, it served power interests to have a ineffectual countervoice in the country. But that vapidity, uh, I think really, and I'll put it from a Dharma perspective, that is the gift quality of something like dukkha. It's its own form of dukkha. It's its own form of dis-ease with the way of things, that moment in which you realize that somehow uh, our mode of attunement is is poor. And so it begins in a kind of, I think, pervasive curiosity, a certain non-compliance with official, the official view of being. You just simply, it begins with an act of defiance towards it, simply by saying, this can't, this can't be it. And so what thinkers do you read when that's your story. That's your awakening. What philosophy do you go to rather than what philosophy is fed to you? And I would say in that way, the continental tradition, certainly in the West, has always been, even the United States, far more popular. Now, I don't mean we can measure that by uh, saying, well, you know, it's the largest number of courses, it's the largest number of faculties, interests. I would say it's the exact opposite. But when you teach a course in these traditions, 
you have a ton of students who elect to take these courses because somehow in these figures, these are living questions, not simply, uh, you know, very interesting philosophical puzzles or interesting ways of philosophically jousting. No, these are as what Dogen calls, you know, uh, the great matters, the matters of living and dying. And so for me, I, I entered philosophy really as a, yeah, a question of, 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 of life and death. To me, it was a great matter of how am I to live? How am I to die? How am I to be with others? How am I to be with the ways of the earth? None of which I found obvious, but all of which I heard being spoken of in utterly insipid ways. But that's the gift, you know. Uh, if if dukkha was so obvious, if dukkha simply was the fact that we don't always get what we want and complain a lot, it would not be a noble truth. You know, you have to think it, and it's revelatory to really get some deep insight into our complicity with our own suffering and ignorance and the ways in which we uh, fight against our interests as if they were for our interests these sorts of things. So to me, it was living, it was alive. And it was a practice even before I had any sense of what these philosophers in the end would have to offer. I could just smell that, that this was real for them. <laughs> good, good, good. Well, your book, Nietzsche and Other Buddhas, is, is also atypical in terms of American Buddhism which is a market very often dominated by a crossover into the self-help industry and uh, personal transformation and development. And of course, now we have the ubiquitous mindfulness as a cure-all for everything. Yes. Now, in writing such an atypical book, what drove you to write it? And even to name it, Nietzsche and other Buddhas. Yeah. Of course, the hardest word in the continental tradition is always the and. Being and time, truth and method. Um, that and is... It's a tricky word, so that's the most important word in the title because I'm not saying Nietzsche is in some very straightforward way a Buddha. And I would say in terms of the industry that surrounds both sides of the conjunction, I find them both, to be polite about it, generally unfortunate. Perhaps the most maligned is the Buddha side. I think this ubiquitous mindfulness of which you speak is... Uh, the irony is not lost on me, but it is lost on the industry. It's it's mindless. Uh, you take highly traumatized people and you take away the only thing they have going for them, which is at least around these traumatic issues, they're attached to the real. And you just, you, you kind of numb them. You make the world somehow uh, less able to speak to them. To me, that's not the Buddha way at all. The Buddha way is to become capacious enough for one's traumas, not to be distracted of enough that you don't have them as you know recurring traumas and self-help i mean this is a highly injurious profession it's a highly monetized profession when we take the bodhisattva vow the first of the four every day sentient beings are numberless i vow to free them this is not self-help this is not uh, we know how to help you uh, the, the buddha way is a little technique that we figured out and just come pay your whatever it is you're going to pay that it's going to profit me and here are the 10 steps to making everything great in your life. But that's always a rotten teaching. I, what I love about the Buddha way and Zen especially is it's hard as hell. You never feel you're any good at it. You feel the more advanced you get, 
the closer you get to understanding the wisdom of acknowledging your own incompetence and also the treasure of it. So I would say in an industry in which they're selling you product, you absolutely bury, I think, the deep practice of being on the way, not of arriving. And then the Nietzsche side, of course, Nietzsche is a very electrifying thinker. And so he's produced a, an enormous amount of, of, of books on him, uh, some of which are good. There's been some great books written on Nietzsche, uh, but a lot of which are, yeah, if you look at the uh, book four of Nietzsche's Zarathustra, in which Zarathustra himself, in a way, is predicting the Nietzscheans of the future, <laughs> the very idea of which, of course, is everything that Nietzsche himself had warned against, you know, health makes the sick sicker. I mean, there's an enormous irony in which all these people are playing out the very things that Nietzsche is trying to dislodge in them as they do normatively, professionally acceptable studies. Nietzsche is the enfant terrible in the sense that he didn't play by the rules, but the industry is waiting to absorb, according to the rules, the very sensibility that Nietzsche, in such exciting ways, was defiant of. And so I think they're two volatile, explosive terms, and I think they have a lot to say to each other. And I think it's good philosophically as well as dharmically to see if we can, as a possible practice for those who are willing, to sit on the lotus of the and. Mm, that's an interesting and unexpected answer. We've spoken a little bit about Nietzsche here, but um, there's one way you, you kind of express the desire within the book, which is to foster a co-illuminating space yes. between the two figures you've mentioned, Nietzsche and the Buddha or Buddhas. Nietzsche is known, of course, with this special term of explosiveness. I actually read a, a really interesting biography uh, about him called I Am Dynamite that came out quite mm. recently. I don't know if you've read it. It was fascinating. I do, I do know this. Yeah. yeah. Um, and very illuminating because, of course, Nietzsche has, as you were describing before, been loaded, like, like the Buddha, of course, with lots of additional meaning, which often mirrors the dysfunction of those doing the labeling rather than actually unpacking what the person might have been pointing to. But despite the explosiveness, the, the question does remain for me. Um, if we're talking about co-illuminating, or if we're talking about a meeting between a Western philosopher and some expression of, of Buddhism, uh, Schopenhauer comes to mind. But even Heidegger, who, if I'm not mistaken, actually learned something about Zen from Nishitani Keiji, excuse the pronunciation mm. if I'm getting that wrong. So I imagine you're, you're versed in all of these thinkers. So what made you side with Nietzsche in particular? Um, why was he on the title and not even one of the other continental thinkers that, that get a mention throughout? Yeah, he was there um, not because I would say that uh, I can or would or think someone should provide an argument that there's no one more appropriate. He's not the most appropriate. He's simply someone with whom you could do this very fruitfully, and that's enough. That's the first thing I would say. Heidegger, um, who I've profited from enormously, he was a, a very decisive influence on my earliest philosophical formation. I think I have moved on. I think that he's always gesturing to Asia. 
Um, but he was, this never manifested in him changing how he lived or changing how he was with others or, and Nishitani was a student for, for two years. Uh, you never have the sense that Nishitani was able to teach Heidegger much. Uh, Heidegger did, uh, often receive, uh, distinguished, um, uh, Japanese visitors, DT Suzuki famously when he was in Germany, uh, but also, I think even more importantly, uh, Hisamatsu. Hisamatsu was one of the lesser known of the Kyoto School luminaries. Uh, he would begin his lectures by having his students have a serious round of Zazen. He was that kind of a person. And uh, there's a very interesting record of Hisamatsu and Heidegger uh, in dialogue uh, about art. And uh, Heidegger could see that, especially from a Zen perspective, so the Zen kind of resonance and the Zen kind of soil of some of Japanese art, Heidegger could just see, wow, they are in a place that uh, is very far from what Europe can think right now. And I would say, A, that's true. Uh, B, that speaks well of Heidegger, that he could see that. But, you know, okay, go. Yeah. <laughs> Study Japanese art. That's what I would say. And then, you know, that would have made Heidegger more attractive. But he didn't. He just, he sat in his own, he sat in his own idiom. And, you know, there's been so many books written on Heidegger's recognition of something else. Now, Nietzsche, on the other hand, was really quite ignorant, despite what he researched uh, on Asian thought. If the opening is going to be how Nietzsche recognized some of the things that I want to uh, bring forward for this uh, exercise in thought, this lotus leaf of the and, or lotus uh, sitting pad of the and, if it's going to be how insightful Nietzsche was on Buddhism, it's going to be uninteresting. In fact, Nietzsche is, in general, I think, quite poor and quite unconvincing on the history of philosophy, East or West. Not only that, it's very clear that he's about as good as it as he wanted to be, as in this was not decisive for him. Uh, and it's probably more an issue, to use an analog from the Zen tradition. The Zen tradition can be quite fast and loose with things if your measure of saying something is it's a well-established historical fact no it's a teaching story and the point isn't to give you an historical fact the point is to bring you into an exercise that begins to expose you to your own mind and to deepen your relationship to your own mind it's like saying you know wow i i, I feel betrayed by herman melville because i realized that there never existed a whale called moby dick well, that's not the point so Nietzsche on the history of philosophy is a bit like that. You know, these are more ways in which what Nietzsche's own practice of thinking, he just uses them as more items along the way. Now, what's very fascinating, and I think very deep, so the first infamous Buddhist in the West was Schopenhauer. And Nietzsche's critique of Schopenhauer on Buddhism, first he thought that... Uh, he loved Schopenhauer because Schopenhauer went his own way. So we call Schopenhauer the, the, last, the, the last philosopher who was a European event. This Schopenhauer who had a tangential relationship to professional philosophy, uh, who was, in terms of the norms of philosophy, a failure, but who was read by people who had a real sense of philosophy as a minority report. So one of the great awakenings for Nietzsche was reading Schopenhauer, not because of Schopenhauer's conclusions, but because of Schopenhauer's sense 
of what philosophy could be and Schopenhauer's incredible enthusiasm to just push the boundaries of the official view of being. Now, what he ended up with was an extremely nihilistic sense of Buddhism, which he thought was great. And so the death of God, as it's going to be experienced and is being experienced in Europe, so the loss of anchoring life and thought in some transcendent set of claims or beliefs or expectations, the loss of that was going to be a reading of Buddhism in which we deeply meditate to utterly detach ourselves from the world and all the problems become as if nothing. Now, in a way, I think that's the same nihilism behind mindfulness. Mindfulness, I find, really is a symptom of these still unresolved spiritual crises of the West. We don't know how to love the world. Nietzsche was one of the great philosophers in terms of making his entire being capacious enough to love the world as it is. And I would say the real test would be this. I don't discuss this in my book, but I often think about it as a practitioner. We know from Nietzsche's letters that he was very much aware that his body had become a ticking time bomb, uh, that things were not going to end well health-wise. And we all know in 1889, in January, he had a spectacular collapse and spent the last 11 years of his life, you know, a walking vegetable. He had some sense of this. And so I always say, well, okay, I'll put this dharmically. Were you to know that you would end up like this, would this be an argument against life? And I would say, for Nietzsche's answer was, no, it was a reason to write Zarathustra, the reason to write Beyond Good and Evil. Is Amor Fati includes this. Why did Bodhidharma come to the East? I would just say, to answer a koan with a koan, to help us with our dying, you know, to help us with our suffering, to help us with our disappointments, which we always imagine as only resolvable by saying that since life did not give us what we want, since we are disappointed, it should not have been, or it's scandalous, or that it's somehow broken. And we don't see our own brokenness. Now, I think Nietzsche saw Schopenhauer's enormous courage, his enormous capacity to write a minority report, and saw him as the chief symptom, because of his brilliance, to the brokenness of European culture. So Nietzsche's critique of Schopenhauer, I would say, wow, there is a tremendous possible opening for those who are inclined to try to put it that way, or for those who would find sitting on the lotus pad of this and helpful to their practice. I think that's an enormous way to, into the problematic within the trajectory of the West's own spiritual crises, of which most Western Buddhism is a symptom, not a response. <laughs> There's a lot in there, but the the phrase that stands out uh, after the crisis of meaning, which I'm fully on board with, and I, I agree with pretty much all your conclusions on that, it's just this phrase, you know, to love the world as it is and how out of fashion such a notion is. <laughs> You know, it actually makes me think of the legacy of someone um, we'd soon rather forget, unless you're a 
a fundamentalist Christian in America, which is Jesus, right? Yes. Jesus on a good day is an archetype of that gesture of humility, of softness, of the capacity to love anything, no matter how imperfect it might be. Um, but we are in trouble, I agree with you, and partly that trouble is intellectual and it is in the 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 practices both individual and social of of buddhists or so-called buddhists in western countries and those who engage with what we might call a superficial practice such as mindfulness um but there are big questions i think that linger on and are part of the wider struggle that you pointed to and the i'm glad you mentioned the fact that and you mentioned it matter of fact, which is how I would like to mention it too. We're nowhere near getting over the loss of God. And as you well know, I'm sure that loss, of course, exists and lingers on. And because we won't accept it, we often pine after it. Or we, we try to look for it in all kinds of places. And that happens within uh, Buddhism too. And my next question is related to that. And I'll read it to you as I wrote it. But you'll see the connection, I'm sure. So. In looking at your book and then more broadly, the the issue of Buddha nature emerges, or enlightened consciousness is another way of saying it, I guess. Jacques Derrida claimed that metaphysics is lurking around every corner of thought. And it seems to me that there is a risk of this with a concept such as pure consciousness or Buddha nature. And we can, of course, talk about it in many ways, and you've already hinted at that, not, not about this necessarily, but in the fact that a lot of what we look at when we look at teachings or, or Dharma or the history of Buddhist thought and writing is that these are allegories, these are stories, these are an attempt at something along the lines of skillful means. But that said, they still exist as claims that must be discussed at some level. I think there is this, this risk that Buddha nature or our enlightened consciousness ends up becoming yet another project, the transcendental state of consciousness. And I cannot but see that as, as a manifestation of this ongoing crisis and the inability of many folks in the West to deal with our physical existence and let go of transcendence. And so it creates this kind of internal schism or dichotomy. Um, it seems to me, though, philosophically, you are kind of working your way through some of the challenges that relate to the idea of some basis for a pure consciousness or true consciousness or something along those lines. Can you speak to the issue of Buddha nature and how you address that or came at it within your book? Yeah, I mean, first I would say, of course, I think Derrida's right. Metaphysics is lurking around every corner. Uh, I think he said that to be helpful, uh, not to be discouraging. Um, and to really, I think, A, distinguish between the practice of philosophizing, and it's a practice, versus the commodity of a philosophy. Uh, it's true that if you philosophize, philosophical things will come into the world, philosophical thoughts will come into the world, but really those are symptoms of the ground of philosophizing, not the goal of why you philosophize. So in the same way, I would say this about uh, the Buddha mind. To know the Buddha mind as if it were a thing is to imagine the entire problematic from exactly the wrong way. If we were to imagine that uh, the mind is a dusty mirror, you can't solve the problem of the dusty mirror by showing it non-metaphysical things or uh, 
you read more Derrida because no matter what is shown to the mirror, the mirror sees the dust of its own surface. And it can't see that its surface is dusty because it's only always been dusty. So it has no insight into the mind's own complicity with how it formulates things and how it expects things and how it wants things and how it desires things. I think this is deep. I mean, I think I take very, very seriously, the, the, especially the Mahayana traditions, they are in the end not saying this. We all know what the problems are, and we recommend these as the solutions. I mean, mindfulness will do that. Mindfulness already assumes that the nature of the problem is self-evident to the parties involved in this practice. I think that's not the case. I think in Zen practice, you're trying to start something that somehow you know you should start, but that even that start is already set on the terms of the problem, not you know that you have clarity towards where you should be going. And so one of those many obvious uh, uh, repercussions of that is we imagine that Zen is or, or Mahayana or the Mahayana practices are some kind of technique some kind of method, some kind of way to get from here to there. And if, you know, in a, like in a hypothetical syllogism, you know, if, you know, if you want A, then you should do B. And because I want A, I know then to, hypothetical imperative, pardon me, not syllogism. Because I, <laughs> I want this goal, then I know that I should do what it takes to get to that goal. That's just not the Mahayana way. It's just not that simple. And so, uh, Part of it, too, is we might say this. We experience the death of God as the loss of being able to orient my life toward the goal of some final reason why I was born or some great task that once I have accomplishment, I've done what it is to have been human. Or there is some reason why I suffered more than you did. And this hangover is deeply inscribed. It's not just because we've been in the Christian tradition and that tradition at the popular level has not done well, and we could just say institutional Christianity and Jesus, we could just keep those aside. Nietzsche had a lot of respect for Jesus, but Ty once said about Nietzsche, Nietzsche and Jesus, they stare at each other as two people thinking without ground, and Nietzsche could have gone other way. I am Jesus, or I am the Antichrist. Yeah, logically, both were possible. I think so that's Jesus, but that's certainly not the history of Christianity. And so already, how we formulate the problem and what we want are part of the problem. And so we need techniques that are also showing us uh, that how we even imagine what our options are and what's desirable are themselves already infected by some of the things that Mahayana is going to try to help us turn the corner on. And so in the end, I would not say that uh, what you're trying to produce is this goal or this mind, uh, or that, you know, there'll be a moment in which, oh, finally I've broken through to the bottom of my mind and I'm done. I think that's, that's bad teaching, or maybe it's a good teaching for the most hopeless students, <laughs> anything to get them to start looking at their own mind, and then we'll see what happens. But the, the Buddha path is without end, and it's never finished. It's not finishable. 
You know, it's to be on the way, not to be towards the end of the way. Well, that's an uncomfortable truth. Yeah, but also I think, you know, I think about this, you know, I will say this in my own practice. You know, you get enough clarity in your mind. Our obsession with solving the problem of suffering by telling us a story about what it means, that was a symptom of our suffering. And really, it's quite liberating to free philosophy from issues of discerning the ultimate signifieds of the universe, or really even finding the enormous beauty and peace and inspiration of a universe that is not you know, hardwired to have meant this or to have meant that or to be going this. It's that the universe is not fulfilling a self-assigned task, uh, that none of these are very helpful uh, ways of, of thinking about things. And they're ways in which we, uh, I don't, we participate in our own self-harm. So Nietzsche is, of course, a great example of powerful philosophy that really is an extraordinary experiment uh, and he always says, this is my way. What is your way? You know, don't be a Nietzschean. Uh, but a powerful experiment to show you how powerful philosophy can be without these transcendental signifiers and signifieds. Yeah. Well, look, can we stay with nihilism just for a moment? Um, I mentioned Nishitani Keiji before. And recently I discovered that he suffered a great deal in his youth. Uh, youth both from physical illness, but he also described himself as being caught in the grip of nihility and despair. Yes. And as you well know, I'm sure they are often, for better or for worse, uh, companions. And if we are gripped in a kind of collective state of the loss of meaning, that might explain why there is so much despair these days. Um, But I'm interested in this more from the perspective of uh, you being a practitioner and a teacher. So my question is, is how, do you, how do you see yourself or other practitioners or the students that you work with struggling with the dichotomy of meaning or no meaning that you were just speaking to? And the fact that, you know, whether you may have made some degree of peace with it, uh, it certainly swirls around the issue of nihilism. And it's, uh, well, it's a front to received visions of the meaning of life. Yeah, I mean, it's a tough thing. Um... I'll, I'll go into it sideways, this through Nishitani, because I think his own experiences I find personally very illuminating and his own trajectory very interesting because on the one hand, as you know, after the Meiji Restoration, uh, Japan rapidly westernized and in a very decisive way injured uh, and I wouldn't say utterly but largely severed Uh, a living line to its own tradition. And so it became almost overnight an extraordinarily superficial culture. Um, And Japanese culture survived without its living ground as it it did this massive cultural overhaul. Now, I say as someone who lives in the United States, so another very superficial country, and again, these stories in which you are masking the trauma with these extremely starting over in year zero sorts of gestures, these new starts. Well, yeah, I think new starts, the desire for a new start at that level is always going to be symptomatic of something that 
you've hit the edge of being able to uh, to confront some trauma. Um, and so Nishitani himself felt the despair of that. And it was interesting that he himself as a Japanese person going totally contrary to the norms of his Japanese education. So the Japanese education would have been based on the newly imported university system, which was imported from Germany. And Nietzsche was in Germany, not considered a philosopher at all. Not even the closest you could have done is say, well, maybe Schopenhauer is sort of a philosopher begrudgingly, but Schopenhauer himself had, you know, uh, mocked institutional philosophy. And he just found this incredible life in Zarathustra. And he would just, he and all the youth of the time just carried it around with them all the time. And it spoke to his deep sense of being utterly unrooted, that there was no ground beneath him, that already experienced the, the, the lack of a ground as a, a freefall. But it was through Nietzsche that Nishitani himself found a way back into the Japanese Zen tradition. Now, I find that, first of all, just extraordinary, both historically, but also as a really interesting way to think about, well, what are some of the more effective ways in which we can find ways to articulate the power of finding in our current historical circumstances the value of a, of a, of a serious Mahayana practice. That was how Nishitani found it. Now, what's interesting is Nishitani's own then turn to Zen, which was opened up by Nietzsche, it's very interesting how he puts it, because really the way into Zen is through the problem of nihilism, the problem of a loss of meaning, the problem of the death of God, problem of our uh, of all of our spiritual uh, eggs have been put in a basket that's floated out to sea and we have no eggs left. Uh, and so we just find ourselves in free fall. Now, Nishitani's insight was, first of all, what a great gift. You have found dukkha for the 20th century and I would say still to the 21st century. This sense of, um, of a hollow nothingness is what the Japanese says. You know, it's, there is me and below me, there's absolutely nothing. And what was there before God, which kept me from being in free fall, that itself is now part of the free fall. You know, it's just, set up the fall to be all the more horrifying. Now in Zen, Nishitani likens this in a very powerful way to what Hakuin always emphasized as the great doubt. And the great doubt is absolutely devastating. It is a free fall that is to go straight into the center of the hell of nihilism, right into its frozen Dante-esque core. Um, right into the mouth of the devil. But the great doubt gives rise to the great death because your experience of this nothingness is always by referring it to yourself. My nothingness. It's And here I think Nishitani is really pushing back against the continental transcendental tradition which always ends up, as does Heidegger, with an ecstatic relationship to the nothing. But an ecstatic relationship to the nothing is still, well, who is this ecstatic subject that stands out against the nothing? Zen. Let go all the way into it. 
So the field of emptiness is how this problem reemerges when the ego is no longer the point of reference for it. Because hooked on to the problem of nihilism is the other great advent of European thought, which is the rise of the preeminence, fundamental preeminence of the subject, me, the ego. To come from the nothing is very different than to stand out trembling in the nothing. And so you think of, say, someone like Sartre, you know, this kind of heroic self-assertion against the nothing. Sartre is as much a symptom of the death of God as the fundamentalist who seizes absurdly and idiotically to nonsense about our theological aspirations. It's the thought of the great death. And I would say, yeah, it's very, very useful to say, first of all, you know, it's not clear that the Buddha meant that dukkha is like, we each have our own dukkha and we each have to kind of sort it out for ourselves. I mean, dukkha is not just personal, it's societal, it's historical, uh, it takes historical constitutions. It includes the death of God as a predicament for a lot of people who are in a certain cultural web. And so even something like mindfulness, part of what I just, as, as a Zen teacher and as a philosopher that uh, I have to just bite my lip the whole thing is so personal. You know, we're not talking about, for example, that dukkha is also the military-industrial complex and that the absurdity of our militarism is somehow not unrelated to the problem of nihilism and the problem of a very deep disorientation to ourselves and the world. Um, and there is an issue there. Well, first of all, there's the question of staring in the face of absolute nothingness and what that does to a person. <laughs> you know, and a sense of humor can help at some point, I guess. But um, I think that produces a question, which is one that's that's been in the background of, of my practice life for probably the last 20 years and was triggered before I came across in any serious way a thinker like Nietzsche, which is how far will we go? You know, if you take some of the ideas that are proposed within Mahayana Buddhism or, or any phase, actually, which is what does the question of the self not actually being all we believe it to be and being self-existent in some way, then how far will you go with that kind of inquiry? And what will you do when it starts to get very uncomfortable? And what will you do when your anxiety comes up? And perhaps you're in a, a community of practitioners who have no desire to be part of that that depth of exploration and risk to your own sense of who you are. That's the one thing. Um, the other thing as well is that I think there is an interesting take on the whole notion of emptiness, which doesn't have to be a dichotomy or a retreat away from that edge towards some sense of looking for meaning again to fill the, the great gaping hole, as someone like Sartre might have done in the way that you explained. But it's this idea that non-existence is there, but existence continues uh, until we die. <laughs> In the meantime, though, you know, the two accompany each other. And I think there's also often um, an incapacity to deal with that consequence of going towards the big black hole or absolute nothingness, as Nishida might have spoken about 
but then have to get up in the morning and, and do all the things you have to do, especially if you have a family. So I quite like this metaphor, um, which I think is, is perhaps part of the antidote to much of this, and goes back to that sentence you, you uttered earlier, which is, you know, how much can I actually love the world? Which is a return to a profound appreciation of the nature of being physically embodied and what it means to live the truths that you're kind of pointing to within that recognition that for this period of time, for as long as we live, we are embodied and the body has its own kind of language. But I think as a practitioner, the, the metaphor I like is the idea that we breathe into that, that edge, which is both terrifying and liberating. And that edge kind of breathes back into us. You know, we kind of breathe in and out of that, that, that almost tragedy to our sense of personal history and narrative. And there's a lot that I would like to say about that, but I think there's probably a good place just to pause for a minute. What would you make of that? Yeah, I mean, I think the teaching of emptiness is decisive. You know, in the, the famous discourse of the three turnings of the Dharma wheel, the Buddha speaks, that sounds great, but wait a minute, what's he talking about? So then we start thinking very philosophically, and the second turning really is the philosophical thought of emptiness. So Nagarjuna and Madhyamaka and these, Yogacara, these, these schools. And then really the third t- turning is, Having a philosophical relationship to the nothing may be helpful, but as a goal in itself, you're worse than before the first turning. So Nagarta is quite clear on that. If you end up with emptiness, you've grabbed the snake by the head, you've miscast the spell, and it's, it's destroyed you. It'll make things worse. So emptiness is extremely decisive, but if you don't use that particular medicine well, it's over. And of course, the the metaphor of medicine, the Buddha was, is not a philosopher. He was a doctor and he had a medicine chest and the teachings are medicines. You know, if I, if you, every time you're sick, I give you my favorite medicine, regardless of what your sickness is, I'll kill you. And so, you know, emptiness is a medicine for what? And the classic answer, of course, is for our obsession with the idea that what makes it possible to say that something is what it is, is because it is fundamentally just what it is, a discrete being, that things have their being first and foremost in themselves. And emptiness surgically deconstructs that by saying that what makes it possible to identify something is not that thing really is what it is all by itself. So emptiness for Nagarjuna led to dependent co-origination, to see that all things are what they are by virtue of what they're not, and that they are interdependent processes, not discrete entities moving through time. And it's an extremely radical teaching. But if you your conclusion is, wow, if this is true of all things and I'm a thing, therefore I am part of a a system of interdependent processes, not a discrete entity living among these processes. I'm not first and foremost myself. I stand out in the field of emptiness as in a field of, you know, groundless, desubstantiating, undoing. Okay, if that's your conclusion, then this teaching is not for you. Let's just change the subject as quickly as possible. Because what emptiness does, I mean, it's a very powerful sword. It gets you to come to yourself, 
not from yourself, but from the ground of yourself. And that ground of yourself is no one thing that's not you that's making you you. It is all things that each in their own way in this vast net or web express now in here this interdependent moment that is also you. This singular node on the net for this one moment, for this one time, is singularly you. But you haven't made it that. It's the web. Without the web, you wouldn't be at all. Another way to put this is to use the analog of, say, the science of ecology. We could straightforwardly say that there's no such thing as, as bears. Well, we'll say that's crazy. I mean, there's at least some bears left in the, in the world. I mean, of course there's bears. Polar bears are up there starving in the, the icebergs. But, you know, at least there's some left, I think, I hope. But that's not the claim. What makes a polar bear a polar bear is that there is a habitat within which the polar bear can live at all. You take away the habitat, and the polar bear has to be a polar bear just by being a polar bear. It can't be a polar bear. It needs a whole world that's not the polar bear that allows the polar bear to be what it is now and here for each moment that it is whatever it is. You know, you lose the ground of the polar bear, you lose polar bears. So thinking of a polar bear just as a polar bear is an abstraction. The ego is an abstraction. But it's an abstraction that we become attached to and we hold on to it at the price of enormous injury to self and others, to enormous dysfunction. I mean, the Anthropocene, I would say, really, that is the immense dysfunction of an extremely abstract relationship both to ourselves and to our ground. And I would say ecologically, this is the call to emptiness. It's the sword. Boom. You are of the net of the earth. Think from that net. Learn to think as a planet. Learn to think as a whole. Learn to think as a sangha, if you will. Learn to think of everyone in the sangha. What did Hui Nang say? One of my favorite lines in the whole Buddhist tradition. I am this. You are this. That's thinking from the ground, not I'm me and you're you. And yes, of course, we're not the same. But more deeply, I am this, you are this. Now, that's an immensely liberating power of the incredibly sharp sword of emptiness. I would say, yeah, the world we live in right now, if it's going to include human beings uh, in a few generations, it's going to need some very sharp versions of, of this sword. If we persist as being first and foremost anthropos, there's no hope. You know, or simply imagining technocratic solutions to the immense ecological crisis that we have put ourselves in, and not just us, but most of the life on Earth with whom we share our being. You know, that is to use the problem to try to solve the problem. The Mahayana way is always... Yeah, you're not really seeing how deep the problem really is. And that's the power of the Dharma today, to get us to see the point in which our analysis or our diagnosis of the problem is always in the terms set by the problem. How do we break that? So in that way, I would say the immense economic and social crises of our day, the ecological crises of our day are First and foremost, spiritual crises. But the word spiritual, I hate that word. I had a, just, I just a, a placeholder because 
I want to use that word with no transcendence, no woo-woo, no magic, no magic or spells. Just teach the withered trees to bloom. You know, but there's, it's to somehow mark that we need some practices that take us out of our quotidian fixations, the very fixations that also determine how we formulate the problem and its ways forward. Um, well, you're picking up on an almost impossible project, but one we must strive towards anyway. Two issues come up there, I think. One is the, the massive amount of fragmentation that occurs as a consequence of this loss of meaning or this loss of uh, ground or unifying ground that gives us a sense of purpose collectively. And I don't see Buddhism solving that problem anytime soon, even though it may have in the way you've been describing some resources or some, some very deep, profound ideas about you know, what the problem is and how we might approach it. Um, that would take me off topic to go in that direction. But uh, I hear you and I, I agree. And for me, it's just an open question. I don't quite know what we do about all this apart from perhaps accept what you said earlier about the Mahayana ideal, which is that it's never done. <laughs> it's a forever project, so you don't yeah. worry too much about the conclusion, but you start doing something in the world that you can to help out in some way, which certainly I can get on board with. Um, I'd like to return to the Kyoto School just briefly, if, you'll, if you don't mind. Absolutely. From what I've read, and you'll have to forgive me if my reading is slightly off, but the three figures, the first one is Nishida Kitaro. Yeah, Nishida, yeah. Nishida, and that's followed by Tanabe Haijimi. Mm. And then we get to Nishitani, who we were speaking about briefly. Um, I came across a really interesting article about the three of them, and I like the way it was written because it painted a picture of both their ideas and their thinking, but their lives and how one led to the other, in a sense. So they're, they're three thinkers who I would say are thinking together, even as they seem to be thinking at times in opposition to each other. I think as practitioners, um, especially if we're practitioners who may not be philosophers like yourself, but practitioners who are really interested in the challenge of engaging in big thinkers or serious thinkers like Nietzsche or others, is that we come up against the ideas and we come up against the ideas not just as abstractions or forms of intellectual performance, but as challenges to our own sense of what we're doing mm. with practice and what we're doing with the ideas that we bring to practice and how we formulate them and conceptualize them, which is something I don't think we can get away from. We can engage with as a feature, uh, not as a bug, and it has to be in some sense made, made peace with. And I like the fact that all of these three thinkers, their humanity comes across in their thinking and their struggles. But they seem to be mirroring the kinds of struggles that you and I might come up against at some point in both sitting with identity or this, this grasping at some kind of self or trying to articulate um, our own experiences of suffering and our appreciation for that as something that goes beyond just ourselves and, our, and this body. Mm. I like the fact that Nishida, in a sense, is struggling with something that many other thinkers are struggling with, which is this idea of, again, looking for a ground and trying to make sense of the critique of that practice. And he comes up with this concept of absolute nothingness. And he's struggling with something which I'm sure you're aware many phenomenologists today uh, working with Buddhist practitioners are trying to, trying to work with too, which is you know that distinction between the subjective and the objective, and trying to find a way 
not to justify, I don't want to say that, but to make sense of it mm. um, whilst dealing with this nagging and overbearing issue of transcendence. And yet after he goes through that and he comes up with, with ways of expressing this idea of absolute nothingness, which I, I'm quite sympathetic towards, you know, then Hajime comes along and he says, yeah, but there's a problem there. You're actually almost creating a thing again, right? You're reifying mm -hmm. this, this basic ground, which is not really there. And his way of trying to deal with that is to say, you know, there's absolute relationship, right? We're, we're utterly caught. In not just relationships to this thing or that thing, but in layers and layers of infinite relationships, which actually replace that ground that you're speaking of. Mm. And then, you know, Nishitani comes along and he seems to be picking up on both of them and saying, well, how do I live with these recognitions, right? And then he finds a sense within this juxtaposition between nihilism and grasping at meaning. And uh, he also comes back to phenomenology to some degree. So let me make it personal for, for a moment, and maybe a question will come out uh, from that. I think there's room for compassion in thinking and feeling alongside these historical figures as practitioners who share our own struggles. And I think there's beauty and something to love about each of their individual struggles and their attempts to make sense of it. And part of me as a practitioner is always wondering what happens when uh, we continuously dedicate ourselves to refuse to turn any of those desires that these three thinkers are exploring into yet another means to turn away from this never-ending process of coming to terms with existence and facing the never-ending project, the Mahayana project, of being of being service, of seeking in some sense to reduce ignorance and suffering in this world. So. I don't know if I have a question in there, Jason, mm -hmm. but there's a certain sense of humanity in all of that. And I wonder, I wonder whether that speaks to you in any way. Yeah, all of those comments speak to me, and um, we could talk about this through the night. I would just say a, a couple of small reflections. One, I regard those three thinkers, and I had probably a couple more names to it, some of their associates. I'd go all the way to uh, Ueda, who just died um, during the pandemic was in that lineage, also an absolutely amazing thinker. Uh, Hisamatsu, I mentioned earlier, was also just mind-blowing. Uh, Miki was destroyed by the Japanese government in World War II, you know, for his defiance to the state apparatus. These are some of the great philosophers of the 20th century, and it says something about the geopolitics of thought, that that is, strikes me, it would strike most people as an eccentric claim. They absolutely had their pulse on things, they come from Japanese society, which on the one hand was struggling with this new German system, which is highly deferential and normalizing. And then, of course, you have your own Japanese customs of not going against your teachers. Yet part of what makes the Kyoto School so extraordinary is that it really, I mentioned earlier that there is a certain non-compliance at the heart of the philosophical gesture, non-compliance with the received view of things, of the official view of being. They really went their own way. And I find it interesting that even at Kyoto, the school that housed these remarkable thinkers, they still love them. Uh, people will go to that university to study with people and to study these figures. And people do that from all over the world. But now it's its own special department and not considered part of the philosophy department, but of special kind of you know 
area studies, Japanese Kyoto school sort of a thing. I find that also very telling. And I find, although uh, for the non-compliance, that is really the courage of these thinkers, all of them were really quite humble. They're dealing with the great matters of living and dying. All of these thinkers are thinkers of the selfless self, of the non-ego self. Nishitani, first and foremost, of the great death. Nishida, from his earliest work, the work, the Zen no Kenkyu, the inquiry into the good, the work that really inaugurates this movement of thinking in Japan. Uh, it's a book of extraordinary movement to the emergence of absolute nothingness as the self gets out of the way of its own ground. Tanabe and Nishida, uh, they sparred uh, because Tanabe is really coming from the Jodo Shinshu approach, uh, which is not a Zen school. That's Nishida, Nishitani, Ueda. Jodo Shin is, uh, as Shinran famously said, you know, Zen is the way of sages, whereas Jodo is the way of, of the fool. You know, people don't take themselves so seriously. Uh, but, you know, my argument would really be those are two different strategies to try to get to the same sort of a thing. That was certainly Nishitani's point of view. And it was interesting that uh, Nishitani followed the custom of philosophers that when they retired at mandatory retirement from Kyoto University, they went to Otani to teach in a retirement, which is a Jodo Shin University. Nishida himself, at the end of his life, really elevates Shinran in the Jodo Shin tradition. And this generosity to think large and huge questions, not as the way Nishida has many, many passages where he says, this is what I'm trying to do, and maybe it's impossible. And maybe what we're trying to do this morning is impossible. Uh, but the practice really is, what are we going to do? You mentioned earlier, yeah, this sword may be necessary. It's hard to imagine that we're going to get this sword, and I mean, who could disagree with that? Certainly not I. But all we can do is everything we can do. You know, I would say we take a vow every day. Sentient beings are numberless. I vow to free them, all of them, which, of course, is clearly impossible. It's totally impossible. We say we, we allow, all four vows are utterly impossible. But that's already to, to see something very deep about the power of this way. Of course, it's impossible. But, of course, you know, I think of this beautiful story that's told by the indigenous peoples in, in my neck of the wood, and there's also a Zen version of the story, very similarly. But I think it's really captures something about the Kyoto school, captures something about Dharma practice in these impossible times with its impossible demands. And it's the story of this enormous forest. So it's a, an allusion to, if you're a Buddhist, the, the fire sermon, everything's on fire. It's, it's all, Wow. And, of course, now that's literally true. The world is on fire. Uh, we have fires here out west where I live that are sometimes the size of Denmark. I mean, it's just staggering. And the bird sees that his whole for forest is burning, his home is burning, everything that it loves is burning. All the beings with whom it shares life are in trouble. And so he says, well, I've got to put this fire out, the little bird says, this enormous fire. And he fl uh, flies to the nearest lake, and the nearest lake is two hours away. So it takes him two hours to get there. And he's a tiny little bird. So the biggest thing he can come up with is an acorn to fill with water. It's as heavy as he can carry. And he flies two hours back, drops his little acorn of water on the fire. Of course, by this time, it's four hours later. The fire is twice as big. The bird goes, oh, man, this is horrible. So he flies back again and does this back and forth, back and forth. And the fire gets bigger and bigger. And the bird gets tireder and tireder. 
And this bear looks up at the bird, bear burned and scarred and the victim of our times, the victim of our history, the victim of our world. He says, what the hell are you doing? And the bird says, everything I can. I think that's the Buddha way. It's not at all results oriented. We are called to live in the Buddha lands, even though their realization on the earth in which we live is probably impossible. But we're called to live in them and speak of them and for them and from them. It's not a bad way to live. Yeah, as the Kyoto School did. I mean, you know, for those who are philosophically inclined, these are also among the great Dharma teachers of the 20th century. And for those who have an extreme allergy to all the woo-woo infections and infestations into the contemporary Dharma, you, you will not get that from the Kyoto School because they are rigorous and hard and this is, these are fully actualized teachers, all of them. I find it a little bit difficult to get into them at the beginning, but I went through a text which really didn't speak to me. Uh, later on, I found uh, work that really, really did. Not being a professional philosopher, I tend to find it very, very useful to read about the life of philosophers. Yep. And then their thought tends to make much more sense to me. And I, that might sound like a trite comment, but I think... Uh, is worth bearing in mind. And I agree with you. I, I think they're brilliant thinkers and absolutely fascinating company, both in terms of intellectual stimulation, but also as uh, profound practitioners, as, as we've been hopefully making very, very clear. This would be a good moment to talk about another uh, movement within Japanese Buddhism, which I find not equally fascinating, but I definitely find uh, fascinating because I see it in a sense as both reactive uh, against partly what the Kyoto School was was wrestling with, but also perhaps yet another symptom of the, the difficult times we're going through. Uh, critical Buddhism is an intellectual movement uh, that uh, took place uh, around the mid-1980s in primarily Soto Zen circles. Interesting mixture because they have something in common with you, if I'm not mistaken. They were both academics and ordained priests, two key figures, Hakaimaya Noriaki and Matsumoto Shiro. And what I find interesting, which is called critical Buddhism, so they do take a critical approach, which I think is a product of the time too, and shows that they were also engaging with Western thinkers as well. But I find them quite fundamentalist in many ways, and, and in that sense also similar to some of the changes that we've seen in certain practitioners or, or schools of thought within Western Buddhism, who are, may look for a kind of aggressive and normative approach to Buddhism, which gets rid of some of the messy complications that the rich history of Buddhism points to and which many people would prefer not to have to deal with. Um, can you tell us something about the movement and what your thoughts are on it? <laughs> Yeah, um, I, mean, I would say this. It's not something you can ignore if you uh, take seriously uh, contemporary Japanese thought. And I've certainly learned some things from them. Uh, I do share your hesitations about them. Um, but I'll first say what I think is really effective, what, the, what, they're, what really I think is the impetus that is motivating them. And I think this is an impetus that you would find less so outside Japan although you might find more so in traditional Buddhist cultures. So, you know, when something's new, planted in new soil, we're already in the second turning because we are asking ourselves, what is this strange plant? 
the hardest is to see something with that same acuity of the second turning, this kind of philosophical investigation, this really sticking at it because you don't know what you have. The hardest to see that would say, for example, we turned to Christianity earlier today. I don't think the tradition is done, although I think that institutional Christianity in its classical formation has come to an end and it's been catastrophic spiritually for a lot of the world. But, you know, that's not to say that the resources are done. It's to go back in. And that's hard because in the Christian world, we take all these things for granted. It's not a mysterious and strange enterprise to us. We imagine it to be somehow be obvious and that it's just about do X, Y, and Z to go to heaven because heaven is not, you know, your life as trauma makes it appear. It's what any rational person would want to do. Uh, only the ego wants to go to heaven, as we know from Zen. It clearly, it's, <laughs> that's a traumatic symptom, the very desire for heaven. I'm putting that aside, it's just hard to see something with fresh eyes, with critical eyes. And so that critical movement, critical Buddhism in Japan, I welcome its impetus on the most general levels because I think any spiritual practice was founded as critical, uh, has always been in its best moments incredibly critical. That's certainly the Buddhist tradition is full of critical Buddhism of some form or another. I would start with the Buddha, who was not a Buddhist. You know, he was uh, a, a medicine giver, a, a doctor, um, a helper but wrote nothing, had to be coaxed into teaching, resisted teaching because he says, look, you know, really, honestly, this what we're talking about in this path is if I first present to you what we're talking about, you're going to want to kill me. It's really hard to teach this stuff because what it's responding to, if it's right, is going to make the, the people who are suffering from this extremely aggressive in their defensiveness. I know I've found your attachments because I see you baring your teeth at me going on the attack. That's something I think the church has always dealt with, with these sorts of issues, sometimes better than others. But the following is also true of a fair amount of Japanese Buddhism historically, so institutional Buddhism, so not really philosophically trying for each generation to win. How are we going to try to fail better this time, fail helpfully this time? get our impossible task to be our refuge this time around for this age, uh, for these maladies. What they're responding to is the following. If you're already a Buddha, why should I worry that women are treated differently than men? Why should I worry about the poor? They're already Buddhas. They're already, the answer is already in their Buddha nature and not in their material conditions. And so you would say a lot of that, you know, a, a lot of the, institutional Buddhist political apathy. And I think we have to say this, a lot of the mainstream, politically widespread institutional Buddhism has been underwhelming in terms of its advocacy for the poor, uh, for social change, uh, for just governance. And so they're struggling with that. Now, having said that, and that's a real problem, and it's a real thing to say, you know, you can't just simply say, you know, from the perspective of emptiness, the problem of world hunger just disappears or is seen in a much more minor perspective. Uh, the Buddha way is, the fully awakened mind is for others. You know, that of course the 
institutional manifestations of dukkha should be of enormous concern, not just personal levels, that we should worry about the industrial military uh, uh, complex, the medical industrial complex, the prison industrial complex, the food corporation industrial complex, the militarism everywhere, empire, all these things. They should be a deep part of the mind at practice. They're really good at pointing those directions. Now, their explanations for that, I think philosophically, tend to be unconvincing. They tend to say things that are untrue of the Buddhist tradition, read critically and thoughtfully, and more true of a certain social tendency in the institutional form of Buddhism. Yeah, I would say um, what they're critical of in Buddhism, or in certain formations of Buddhism, I think is the impetus in the thrust well and critically read of Buddhism. So rather than blame the institutions, I think they blame, in a way that I find unconvincing, some of the doctrines of the Japanese schools. But it's important. It's an important thing because, uh, you know, we have to get beyond some sense that I'm on the other shore. You're not. Therefore, your hunger is of no concern to me. That's not the Buddha way. Yeah, I think they also do a pretty good job in attacking the tendency for the reassertion of, of some kind of self. And I think they attack that critically in a way that could actually be very, very useful to a lot of Western Buddhists. So they're, they're constantly chipping away at the fact that, you know, people sneak in, going back to Jacques Derrida again, a kind of metaphysical element within things. So I think they're good at that. But uh, yeah, I agree with you. I think I think that pretty much captures it, but they're well worth thinking about. And again, if listeners don't know about their work, you may want to look it up because the the meeting point between Western philosophy and Buddhism is taken very seriously. These are the serious thinkers, whatever you end up making of them. And yep. there's nothing wrong with somebody challenging your, your notions that things are one way and not another, right? That's That's good for us. Yeah. Yeah, we should welcome it. I think the Buddha path has always been critical. And, and I would say, so the, if uh, listeners want a, a reference, Pruning the Bodhi Tree is a very nice collection of their essays. I'd say if you wanted to start with one book, it would be that, Pruning the Bodhi Tree. Uh, and I'd also say it's interesting because in the West, we get to speak of Nietzsche, Heidegger, so these very singular individuals. But when we look at the East, we speak of Buddhism, and we measure it from its lowest common denominator, so the most generalizable one, rather than its greatest figures. And, you know, the Buddha way is not anywhere in the world, including the Western world. It's what all people who take the Buddha path do. No, it's, it's the struggle among our most conscientious to fail better at addressing the needs of our time. And people have to, listeners have to, find their teachers. And and I would say there's one last thing on this. This is a teaching that I've always loved from the Pali Canon. And I think about it a lot as also just a philosophy professor. You know, uh, a young student came to the Buddha and said, well, you know, I have the following dilemma. I want to have a good teacher, but that's really hard to know who a good teacher is because if I knew the teachings already, I would know who the good teachers are, but um, I would know the teachers already, so I wouldn't need a teacher. But I need a teacher because I don't know what the good teachings are. So if you don't know what the good teachings are, how would you ever know who the good teachers are? And that's a very serious question. Mm. 
You know, mm. seriously, because that's, of course, we're always going to end up with bad teachers because how would you know? And so the Buddha's response was, I think, wow, this is, I think, how incisive this tradition can be. First of all, great question. And so you have to ask yourself, as you look at people who would be your teachers or not, ask yourself, does this person strike you as somebody who would say something untrue and therefore harm you so as to profit themselves? Are they capable of that? You know, are they in it for themselves? Or are they in it for the project? As best as you can tell. Not they teach this or that. They have the best reading in Nishitani. They have the best Inca Dharma lineage. No, how do we know? Is this person sincere? And is this person going to dedicate themselves, I'll put it in my language, to failing better, to be on the lotus leaf of that and, the great conjunction of our spiritual resources at any given moment? And of course we're going to fail. How could we when we already admit from the get-go that what we're trying to do is impossible? So the mark can't be who's the most successful, who's the most humble, who's the most sincere, who's just going to give it everything that they have. And I think, you know, that's how we should judge the Buddhist tradition also, you know, not bring everyone along. You know, there's been a lot of garbage been a lot of mistakes in every single cultural form of anything, but we have to always somehow uh, sift through the sands of the great gift of the tradition and try again. Yeah, and take a risk. And, take a risk. Yeah. And we need each other, right? I mean, <laughs> to keep it really, really simple, we need each other. There's no doing any of this stuff alone. The Sangha is one of the three treasures. I mean, yeah. Yeah. But that, that Sangha, I mean, if it's an ideal, it, it doesn't have to be a Buddhist group. I mean, for me, at least, you know, if I listen to well, the, the person I'm going to speak about in a moment, uh, Gramsci, who makes an appearance in your book. Yes. Whether it's Gramsci or it's the Kyoto School or it's Nietzsche, I think their humanity is what allows them to become part of our Sangha, part of I our... I completely agree. I completely yeah. agree. The Sangha, those who you happen to practice with, if you don't practice with yeah. who are serious, you're just with a group of people. The Sangha is the Buddhas living among you, whether or not they've yeah. ever heard the word Buddha or not. Nietzsche was not a Buddhist. He despised it, but he was mm. part of the Sangha. Yeah. Yeah. Couldn't agree more. So look, um, I'd like to talk about ideology for a moment. Yes. It's a topic that appears time and again on the podcast, uh, also because I think it acts as a great antidote to the, the focus in on the individual that's still so rife in Western Buddhism. Now, Althusser, um, has a sense of ideology, which I've always found very, very helpful. I like the fact that he extends it beyond, you know, merely political or economic modes of collective being or, or ways of managing society and ensuring compliance. But, he, you know, he, he went beyond that and he saw through his own paranoia, the poor fella, how we are, our subjective space, right, our senses of ourselves within that kind of internal world, whatever it might be, is formed to some degree by ideology as well and through shared notions of being and thinking and even feeling. And what ends up becoming socially acceptable is, is in a sense, contained by this shared, almost unconscious allegiance to a, a form of ideology. Now, 
I've been critiquing Buddhism for some time because I always found that that was taking place within Buddhist groups in the West, and more often than not, it was unconscious. And talking about it would tend to lead to perplexity on the part of practitioners and teachers. I like the fact that you pick up on this and you talk about Gramsci and you talk about ideology, but you talk about this very simple distinction that Gramsci makes, which I think is quite useful, which is between common sense and good sense, with common sense being a kind of performance of the ideas that make up what it means to be normal within an ideological group, whether that be Buddhist or otherwise. And good sense instead points to something that's liberating, right? Or has a character or a force of liberating within it. And that's just brilliant, right? Because we know that ideology can end up becoming hegemonic. And there's a phrase that I'd like to read back to you uh, from the book. It's on page 102. And it's this. It's the prisoners, or a subject, uh, has no critical curiosity about their shadow world or about the chains that keep them bound to it. And they always come to preordained conclusions that they continuously assume to be natural and obvious. They sense what they are meant to sense. Now that's great. Uh, That really captures exactly what I think about this. And my question is actually not necessarily about Gramsci or about ideology per se as an abstraction, but it's about your role as uh, a Zen priest. And I wonder how you integrate this kind of insight into your practice as a Zen priest so that you're not, in a sense, performing uh, some kind of ideology that captures the people that come to you, and how you avoid that process becoming a a kind of dark mirror, if you like, or a dark performance of Buddhism. How do you manage that? Yeah, of course, that's a, that's a, that's a hard question. Uh, first of all, I'd like to say that uh, I completely agree with you that ideology is extremely important. I'll give you some examples of I- ideology that uh, just exemplify what you just said about it. Individualism, we're all individuals. You know, the very individual that is going to be the bulwark against ideology, I'll go my own way, this I, is highly ideological. And I'll give you a, another one, Buddhism. I mean, the Buddha, in essence, taught that there were no isms, so there's no Buddhism, you know, emptiness, to think without isms. And I would also say that it does put us in a very, very difficult fork in the road, because I think the deep thrust of the Buddha path at its, with its sharpest sword has always recognized from the beginning the problem of something like we would now in a contemporary idiom call ideology. I think the the old term for it was avidya, you know, delusion. The brain unable to see that it cannot see. And that's how ideology works. I mean, no one ever says, wow, you know, um, I have how am I going to look at things? Well, I think it would be more comfortable if I looked at them ideologically. No, it's always the other way around. Ideology always is a revelation that uh, your mind, which you thought to be your own mind, and your conclusion, which you thought to be your own conclusions, were themselves already part of a an official view of being, if you will. And so when we began our conversation earlier today, and I said that philosophy is the minority report, I mean, it really has to be the decision at some point in your life 
to try to have a community of people who are going to help each other use Manjushri's sword against the ideology, not just out there, that's very ideological. It's in our bones. It's, you know, in our subjectivity. Uh, it's in our initial sense of even what our problems are and what we desire. I mean, the Buddha, when he so long ago is able to get us to see that a part of our suffering is that we can't see that we don't want what we want. That desire itself, our running towards things that we hold to be good, is part of our own suffering, part of our own lack of balance. You know, that we anxiously demand suffering as if it were its opposite. So nothing could be more important. You know, in the Zendo in Japan, uh, many of them will have, as you walk in, Manjushri sitting there in the Zen pose with the long sword uh, in his lap or over his shoulder or sitting on the tiger with the using the sword as a prop, ready to use it. The Kyosaku, the warning stick, looks a lot like Manjushri's sword. It's hard, but it's been hard from the beginning. And I would say to clarify your mind, yeah, if I tell the dusty mirror that is dusty, it just gives me a dusty response. That's always the problem of ideology. If you're right, ideology, and I would say, you know, um, Althusse is great on it. Uh, Gramsci is great on it. I also like Hannah Arendt on it. Hannah Arendt has ideology, which is the appearance of thought in a constellation in which thinking is impossible. Thinking is impossible because ideology can have no outside. It can never be wrong. You know, we think of how hard it is to talk about religion or politics in the world. It's because we're totally ideological. Uh, no one can say anything that could possibly get us to reconsider or rethink our position. That's ideology. But it's highly delusional because you hold on to your intellectual attachments as if you were devoted to reality. And it's hard to root out. Sentient beings are ideological. I vow that they will one day think. Of course, impossible. But you know, that's the sword. That's the sword that a compassionate person is called to become. And that sword isn't, you think X, I will get you to think Y. I'll break through and let you think for yourself. And I think Mayana's at its best is really, really good. The Sangha is not the group of all those who agree. It's the net of all those who care for each other and allow each other, including ourselves as another, to emerge in our ongoing singularities. But to do so without ideology or without delusion. And so in my book, although I, I was not explicit about it, I am drawing on that the ancient problem of delusion as the root of the three poisons, so already tucked into the second noble truth, is really ideology is a way for us to see that problem on its mass level really, really clearly. And I'm struck by this. You know, uh, it's the case that when Stalingrad, St. Petersburg fell in 1944, and it was clear to Hitler that he had no hope of winning the war, 
more Germans died fighting uh, the two-front war uh, than died in the rest of the war combined. Now, that's ideology. There's no, <laughs> there's no possible way for any other victory other than for any any victory. But of course, ideology is not even concerned with so what should be so obviously an objection. This is mad. To me, I think, yeah, we should remember that. We, that our ideology is going to be not our stupidity, not our lack of intelligence. It's the ideology, ideological cast of our mind that's going to make it impossible for us to have the requisite generosity and the requisite imagination to live differently so that we can simply live long-term ecologically. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And it's difficult not to think of uh, Putin and Russia and what's going on currently there without, you know, hearing your reminder of the madness of uh, Hitler's decision during uh, an unwinnable war. Look, our time is limited, and I've got two more questions I want to ask you. Um, the first one is probably a shorter one. In your book, you talk about an autocratic practitioner. I wonder if it's related to what you've just said about ideology or not. So what is what is an autocratic practitioner? Yeah, exactly. So one who is ideologically uh, attached to her or himself. So the root of the practice is themselves rather than the Dharma. Okay, that's a very concise answer. And that gives us time for this. Look, um, Jason, we've talked about a lot and... As I mentioned at the beginning, the book you wrote, I'll be honest, I found it difficult to get into, first of all. And my first two attempts got me nowhere. And I did what I, what I do when I can't get into a book, but I'm simultaneously attracted to it. I basically looked through the different headings for the, the chapters, and I just started on the one I was most attracted to. And that kind of helped me to understand the way you were thinking and expressing your ideas. That's not just uh, something I'm communicating to you as the author, but it's is something to say to listeners out there if they haven't read the book. Uh, the book really is very, very rich. And so my suggestion is you go with whoever grabs you the most out of the continental thinkers that Jason uh, explores. I want to come back to a figure who's, who's clearly fundamentally important to you and the way you think and is included in the title of your other works. What do you think Dogen uh, might have to say about the kind of conversation we've had today and some of the ideas? Uh, we've been exploring. Perhaps we can finish with that. Yeah, I, I it, uh, yeah. full disclosure, I would say um, Dogen is of all the treasures of people for whom I am grateful to have been exposed to. Uh, no one has given me more than Dogen has. Have anybody ever read my entire life? Um, I think Dogen was a very uh, for the philosophically inclined. The rarest of gifts. So a level of dharmic insight and a groundedness that is rare. So that alone would make him exceptional. You know, just a really he just went very far and very deeply into the path. Uh, but there are others like that, and doing it in a way that is philosophically communicable is not necessary. Um, but what makes Dogen unique is he has a level of attainment that is among the truly compelling, but he had a, 
as a gift. It just so happened to be how he was configured, how uh, what he ended up with. He was a brilliant philosopher, but he put all of that energy towards articulating the depth of Zen experience and towards opening the true Dharma eye in others and towards thinking deeply about what is it that we do when we communicate such things? How is Dharma transmission possible? I value being as maximally accessible, but it's difficult material. I have no illusions that it's not without its challenges. I just would like to think I didn't add any unnecessary challenges. I just tried to keep things as challenging as the material merits without furthermore ex- obscuring them. But I would say, as hard as it is, Dogen's harder. Uh, Dogen is really, really difficult because, number one, he is trying to pull you into a level of Dharma attainment that is itself already deep. And by his own uh, argument, we always speak to each other, not idea to idea, but Buddha to Buddha. To speak is to me, is for me to speak in such a way that I arouse the Buddha in you and we meet not as two people who agree, but mind to mind, Buddha to Buddha, only Buddha and only Buddha. So that's hard already. He's trying to draw out the conditions of accessibility in what he's doing. It's a remarkable thing. And he does that also with tremendous uh, intellectual athleticism. And he does everything he can. I mean, the Shobogenzo, and it was 95 fascicles. You know, it's, it's in some, some editions, it's almost 800 pages. Uh, every page is really difficult. But wow, it's, it's worth it. It's absolutely worth it. Uh, because he's drawing you in to your mind, which is where you meet his mind. And uh, Dogen has a very beautiful way of putting it. And to me, it's just been very inspiring. When we meet, when we communicate, maybe hopefully when you listen to this podcast, if even for a moment, where we meet is not at the level of intellectual agreement, but we meet in mind itself. And at that moment, the Buddha is present. All Buddhas before the Buddha are present. All Buddhas since the Buddha are present. All Buddhas still to come are present. You're with the myriad assembly the great general assembly of all sentient beings, the universe itself in all 10 directions, everything is present in that moment. I would say in a world in which philosophy is doing intellectual parlor tricks, reading somebody (laughs) who aspires to do that, wow. In in this world in which we talk past each other uh, or we only know how to reach each other through demanding in the other some kind of intellectual compliance or agreement rather than really, as Huynang said, I am this, you are this. You know, I, my aspiration is always to speak from the well and source of all sentient beings, including anybody who would take the foolhardy path to try to read me and with gratitude to the foolhardy path that I took trying to read others. And... Yeah, it's impossible, but there we are. I love what Gary Snyder said. You know, Zen is the insight uh, that you will give everything you have, every single thing you have, 
knowing in the end that nothing was possible. That's not an argument against it. It's our joy. It's what it is to live in the Buddha lands. So, yeah, the book is written for practitioners for whom the philosophical path is helpful. It's also written by somebody who knows that that is a path among paths and that we are called to find whatever way in is is most useful for us. The Buddha's medicine chest was large and had many medicines for many, many kinds of ailments. Or I think of the Lotus Sutra, you know, the one path, the Ekayana, the Dharma rain falls equally on all, but each receives it to their own capacity. The earth receives the rain differently than the rock does. But the claim is not, why is the rock not the earth? We are what we are. We have the capacities that we have, and we should receive we should receive the way in, in whatever ways our capacities facilitate. Well, thank you for that, Jason. Um, I guess I'm going to have to finish up by saying, are you working on a new book currently? I am. I'm close to finishing it. It's, um, it's, a, it's a book by a person who's getting older. And so, um, yeah, just feeling less and less bound by the proprieties of my, uh, the norms of my profession and just more willing to take risks. But it's called Turtle Island Anarchy. So it's, uh, if you will, a, uh, a work of Dharma ecology that really tries to take on these problems in an interdisciplinary way. So it's got lots of Buddhism, but lots of social political theory, lots of philosophy, lots of indigenous thought. Turtle Island is the the original, the the new old name for what we call um, North America, so Canada, the United States, and Mexico. And by calling it Turtle Island, it's not nostalgic at all. It's not that you see a new thing, but that you see in a new way. So what it is to be here in a new way. And so tying in climate challenges, the social political challenges, the decolonial challenges, the really trying to, uh, to, to enter into very deep dialogue with uh, the resources among indigenous peoples to the extent to which they'll share them with us for our practice. And to really, really think, what is it to have a Dharmic practice in its institutional side and in its shared culture side? So Turtle Island Anarchy. It's a crazy book. <laughs> yeah, it sounds crazy, but uh, potentially very interesting and, and timely. Uh, Jason, it's been a, a pleasure talking to you, and thank you for sharing sincerely and being generous with your time. Thank you so much, Matthew, and thank you for all the work that you do and for all the ways that you uh, help others and uh, keep the level of discourse at a very high and helpful and compassionate level. That's a, a very great teaching and a very great gift uh, that you give to all of us. So thank you. This is me, Matthew O'Connell, and sponsor of the Imperfect Buddha podcast. That's right. It's my podcast and I'm sponsoring it. Hmm. Is that even possible? Well, who cares? I'm doing it. And this is really a reminder that I coach, mentor, and teach folks the weird and wonderful ways of the practicing life. Drawing on person-centered counseling, life coaching, critical dialogue, and years of teaching and group facilitation, I coach and mentor folks looking for an alternative to the current market of self-help, spirituality, and religion. Much of what I have specialized in touches on themes that have been explored in the podcast. So for those new to this podcast and 
this kind of approach to coaching, let me fill you in a little bit. I use post-traditional tools and tools taken from the world of non-philosophy and non-Buddhism and my own experimentations with both. Most of the clients that come to me through this podcast are current or ex-Buddhists, ex-spiritual types, and those cautiously approaching practice with a view to keep their intelligence and critical faculties intact. If you are an intellectual hiding your desire for something along the lines of a spiritual practice, yes, the scary quotes are out there, don't be shy, come on out of the closet and be proud. We'll find a way to make it work that you don't need to be ashamed of. Seriously, I mean it. I work with traditional coaching and counselling methods too, as well as meditation. And for the more adventurous folks, I can offer shamanic tools well, they're really neo-shamanic tools and concepts and something akin to a practice rooted in a reconfiguration of our relationship with the natural world, minus the romanticism. I offer a sliding scale, so whatever your economic status, if you're genuinely interested in upping your game, money should not be an obstacle. Wherever you find yourself in your life right now, if you wish to refine your relationship with practice and take a leap into a deeper relationship with the practicing life, do get in touch. The first session is non-committal and won't cost you a dime, a euro, a cent or a penny. We'll decide together whether it's going to be a potentially good working relationship and if so, you can commit to a cycle of practice sessions. I currently do most of those online through Skype or Zoom, although if you happen to be in Italy or somewhere near the border, you might even come down for a session in person. You'll find all you need in a contact form at imperfectbuddha.com or you can get in touch through imperfectbuddha at outlook.com.